you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to open them up to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 20 is where we are this morning. We're going to pick up where we should have been last week. I missed being with you last week, but uh, I couldn't be here and you didn't want me here in the condition I was in. Uh, and so we're going to pick up where we were last week. A special thanks to Pastor Stephen on the spur of the moment stepping in like that. Uh, to, to deliver the message for you. Appreciate that so very much. In Luke chapter 20, we have a, a rather interesting story uh, that we find in the life of Jesus. I mentioned to you before, as we began this chapter, that you have some different groups of religious people that show up here. We're introduced to them in the very first verse of Luke chapter 20. You find them there, one day Jesus teaching in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him. So you have these religious groups that are kind of surrounding Jesus at the present moment, and they're, they're kind of bantering back and forth with him, and they're doing their best to catch him up in, in some sort of question and answer time that they bring to him. Jesus, we're going to ask you a question in order to try to trip you up, to undermine uh, his, his base of support, to undermine his credibility among the people. And so the whole goal in all of this questioning essentially is, Jesus, we want to undo anything you might be doing in your ministry and in your life. And so we have another one of those encounters coming before us this morning. You remember the first one that we had in the first opening verses, the first eight verses of Luke chapter 20, the, the, these religious leaders come to him and they ask him this question, by whose authority are you doing what you're doing, Jesus? Remember, he's, uh, he's cleansed the temple, he's run the people out, and who do you think you are, Jesus, doing this sort of thing? And instead of answering the question, he turns the question around on them, and he says, I tell you what, I'll answer your question, you answer mine. By whose authority was John's baptism? Was it of God or was it of man? Of course, they couldn't answer the question. They knew that if they said it was of God, then Jesus would say, well, why don't you follow what he says? If, he, if they said, rather, that John's baptism was of, of men, then there's going to be a riot on their end with the people who love John and his prophetic ministry. And then, uh, after that question that comes along, Jesus tells a parable. Essentially, in the parable, he says to these people, you have rebelled against the word of God. You are disobedient to God's word. And you are disobedient to the, the word that the messengers of God have sent. You've even put the messengers of God to death. And now you'll put the Son of God to death. And so, basically, Jesus is kind of in their face saying to them, you've got a problem. And so they thought, well, I tell you what, we'll turn the tables, we'll come back to him again. I imagine this second question that they had for Jesus was one that they had reserved in storage for when they really needed it. Because it was a big question. They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, answer me this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, this is a big question. This was a doozy of a question. Because no matter how Jesus answers this question, it's going to undermine everything that he's doing. Because if he comes along and says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar, well, the Romans are going to come in. They're going to squash Jesus in this rebellion as they perceive it. And everything will be done and over with. 
If, however, he comes along and says, yes, of course you should pay your taxes to Caesar. Well, the people are going to revolt and say, why do we want this guy around us? He's just in cahoots with the Roman government, our oppressor. And so Jesus comes along in that very, very familiar verse and he says, I tell you what, you see on that denarius, that coin that you have, Caesar's face is imprinted on that. So you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and you give to God what belongs to God's. God. And again, they're undone. They have nothing more to say to it. And then finally, we come to the third wave of questioning here. The, the question is a mocking one. It's, it, it is a question that lacks sincerity. Let's look at it together. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Oh, now we've got you, Jesus. <laughs> now we've got you. How are you going to answer this question that comes along, Jesus? And here's the scenario that they bring up before him, teacher. Moses gave us this law. It was, it was a, 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 a way for God's provision to be for families. You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25 if you would like to. And this was basically set up so that if there was a, a husband and a wife and they were left childless and the husband dies, a brother could take that wife as his own in order to raise up children through her so that the family name would continue and there would be a heritage left for the family. And so they come along with this absurd scenario. There are seven brothers, and here we have not seven brides for seven brothers, but seven brothers for one bride. The first one takes this wife and he dies with no children. So the second brother comes along, and he takes her as his bride, but he dies without having children. The third one comes along and takes her, the fourth one, the fifth one, the sixth one, the seventh one, and all of them die, but yet they are left childless. And so, in this resurrection that you suppose happens, Jesus, whose wife is she going to be? Now, it's interesting that the Sadducees would even ask the question because, as Luke tells us at the very beginning, they deny that there is a resurrection. They don't believe there is a resurrection. When this body comes to an end, body, soul, spirit, it all is just simply over. We just become worm food, and that's the end of life as we know it. There's nothing to look forward to, which has promoted the, 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 schoolboy, the schoolboy phrase, this is why they are sad, you see, because they do not believe in the resurrection. So these Sadducees come, they present this, and they're not interested in an answer. They don't care about an answer. They think that simply by asking the question, they have disproven everything that these people believe about basic doctrine related to the resurrection. They come in a sneering, very condescending way. 
It's, it's, it's all an academic question. It's a completely hypothetical situation and a hypothetical question. And the whole question, as I say, revolves around this provision that God had made back in Deuteronomy chapter 25 for this family, for the heritage of the family, and for the, the, the lineage of the family to continue. If you go back and you read the Old Testament book of Ruth, this is exactly what plays into the book of Ruth. Ruth's husband has died uh, along with her brothers-in-law. And so she meets Boaz here. And Boaz is kin to the family. And so he steps into this relationship with Ruth in order to provide. Now, by the time you get to the time of Jesus, really and truly this practice it just wasn't used much. People just kind of basically ignored it. And so that's why this is really a very academic exercise more than anything else at all. I think of the scenario that's been put up, and I think to myself, how would you have liked to have been about midway through the line of those brothers? <laughs> brother one and brother two had died. I'm three. Something's fishy, I think. <laughs> brother four, brother five, and I don't know about this. This looks pretty weird to me. Maybe we've got a black widow going on here or something like that. And finally, all seven brothers die, and then the woman dies as well, probably very thankful that death finally took her after this string of seven brothers that came to her. And so the question comes along from G for Jesus, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? This was one of those questions that the children of the Sadducees would ask the children of the Pharisees to mock them. In one of those, my dad's smarter than your dad kind of questions, you know, that we did as children. Uh, my dad can beat up your dad. My dad's smarter than your dad. The children of the Sadducees would come along and ask the children of the Pharisees these questions just to mock them, just to come against them as a way for them to say, see, it is absolutely absurd for you to believe in the resurrection of any sort. This life is all that there is. Make the most of it. Imagine the chaos in heaven, if you will, when this wife, this bride gets to heaven and there are her seven husbands waiting for her. What's that going to be like? Now, if you look at Luke's gospel and you compare it to the other gospel accounts of the same event, you begin to be able to, to piece together the, the details that one author will not emphasize while the other author, author will emphasize. And so let me jump you over to Mark chapter 12 here because I want you to see something very important in Jesus' addressing this question that is before him. Because what Jesus does is, essentially he says to them, I, I'm just not even going to enter into this debate with you about the resurrection because this is a non-negotiable. We're not even going to have this conversation. Instead, what Jesus does is, he says, I want you to see something very important as to why you even ask this question. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus said to them, verse 24, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> You see, the Sadducees come along and they say, here's the scenario. Whose wife is she going to be? Because we don't believe in the resurrection. And Jesus just totally obliterates them by saying, well, really, isn't this the reason you're wrong? I love that. Here's the reason you're wrong in that. You'll hear me say from 
from time to time when we have theological discussions with one another. Well, that's why I'm Baptist, to give you the right to be wrong anytime you'd like to be. It's just a way of kind of having fun. But Jesus here wasn't having fun. He says, is this not the reason that you're wrong in your belief? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In other words, Jesus puts on full display his attitude towards the word of God and towards the doctrine that he holds so dearly that the word of God teaches. Jesus triumphs over these questions and these attitudes by appealing to the word of God. And essentially what he says to them is, the reason you are asking this is because you do not understand who God is, you do not understand what God can do, and because you've not been reading your Bible. Can I just say to us today, there's really nothing new under the sun, is there? We encounter the same kind of thing on a continual basis. It's why we have this refrain that we hear from time to time. Well, as, as, as the, the Bible tells us, God helps those who help themselves. The Bible doesn't tell you that. That's a lie. And yet these things come up. Why? Because people do not know the Word of God, nor the power of God. We hear things trickle down from time to time, and we simply grab hold of it and say, it must be true. You ever heard this one before? We've talked about it before. God will never put on you more than you can bear. That's not Bible. You will not find that in the Word of God. In fact, what you will find is the exact opposite, that in our weakness, the strength of God is shown to be perfect and sufficient for us. Amen. Indeed, God is most glorified when we have more on us than we can bear, but we lean upon Him, and He brings us through in triumph and victory over it and through it. And so what happens is we simply hold on to things and we believe things because we've been told that they're true. But we do not know the Word of God nor the God of the Word. Essentially what's happening here is, and let me just say, there are times that people come to us and they have sincere, honest inquiries. Sincere questions about what we believe and why we believe what we believe. And in those situations we respond and we, we, we deal with respect. And grace. But sometimes that just isn't the case. Sometimes it's simply the case that people want to say, well, this is just balderdash and I don't believe it. And essentially what Jesus is saying here is simply this. Sadducees, you're mistaken. I'm not debating this with you. The resurrection is non-negotiable. And here's why. You see, we, we live in a world of, of Sadducees in this current day. It's a sad statement that many of them will be standing behind pulpits this morning, professing to preach and teach the tenets of Christianity, but denying the basic truths of Christianity, even the resurrection itself. I remember years ago there was a, a, a rather famed theologian 
who was asked the question uh, of, of the interviewer, and he said, when, when, when it all comes down to it, in the end, if you are wrong about all of this, and you, you stand at what you think may be eternity, but you're wrong in all of these beliefs, will you look back and say, oh, it's just been a wasted life. It's been inconsequential. He said, no, 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 not at all. Regardless of whether the resurrection is true or not, my life is better because of Christ. But see, that's not what the Bible teaches. Your life is better because of Christ, whether the resurrection is true or not. But understand this, the resurrection is true, and because it's true, we look forward to change not just in this life, but in the life to come for all eternity, and it has a tremendous impact upon us. And so there are those who deny the resurrection while at the same time professing to be followers of Christ. And when they do that, they now find themselves opposed to the very teaching of Jesus they want to espouse. And so first of all, we see Jesus' attitude towards doctrinal beliefs here. Let's come down to verse 34 as Jesus begins to answer the question for these people. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Did you see what Jesus does in the very opening of his reply to them? He presents them with a distinction between this age and that age. You see, life in heaven after the resurrection, while it will retain some elements of the life that we know, it's going to be dramatically different. Even though we will hold on to bodies, we will have bodies that are not impacted by death and disease any longer. Dramatically different. In preparation for study, I was reading a commentary by Leon Morris. Leon Morris made this statement. He said, human relationships are largely a matter of place and time. They are therefore bound to be different when neither of these apply. Without reference to time or place. Because we spend our lives revolved around time and place, Right? The alarm clock goes off. There's the time. We've got to get up. Where are we? We're in our home. We've got to get ready and go through our stuff. We've got to leave at a certain time, which means we have to do all of these things at certain times in order to be able to be gone so that we can get to the next place at a certain time. And then when we step into eternity, these things are drastically changed. The, the dimension of eternity is, is difficult for us to picture because we are so tied to time and place that we can't think of living in an environment where that's not the focus of our thought and lives. The, the, the problem that most of us encounter, quite honestly, is that we live our lives for this age without thought to that age. So even when we proclaim to believe in the resurrection, even though we proclaim to believe that this life is not all that there is, that there is more to come, even when we proclaim to say that is true, our lives often betray us. 
We fill our minds with the thoughts that the age to come will be so much like this age that we consume ourselves with stuff related to this age. See, the Sadducees couldn't imagine that eternity would be any different from this age. That age is going to be the same, just longer. Do you understand why many people aren't intrigued by the prospect of heaven when we present it that way? I mean, seriously. I don't want to think about an eternity that is like this age, just longer. I'm looking forward to the conclusion of this age so that the, that age is experience. And so we, we live without the recognition of the distinction between the two. We simply tie that age to this age, and that's what the Sadducees were doing here. Whose wife is she going to be then? No, no, no. You got it wrong. You're comparing this age to that age, and you're saying they're similar or they're the same, and they're drastically different. Yeah, we're currently tasked with living in this age, but we're ultimately moving toward and living for that age. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Where is our citizenship? It's in heaven. We are passing through this life in different geographical locations, but our citizenship together is in heaven. And this doctrine of eternal life changes everything about the way we live and the way we behave in this age as followers of Jesus Christ. At least it should. It should. It's interesting the way Jesus puts this in verse 35. He says, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Prepositions are important. Jesus speaks here of the resurrection from the dead. We might have used a different word and said resurrection of the dead. Jesus intentionally uses this word, resurrection from the dead. Because there is a resurrection of the dead. There's a resurrection of the dead that is coming. In fact, every single person will participate in this. There is a resurrection of the dead. Everyone who dies will be raised back to life. And then eternity will begin for them, either in heaven or in hell. The options that are given to us concerning eternity are very clearly laid out in the Word of God. And one day, you will be resurrected out of this dead shell of a body, and you will step into eternity either in heaven or in hell. But here Jesus is talking to His people, and He refers to the resurrection from the dead. It encompasses the totality of death. Resurrection from the dead. No hell for us who are in Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at how I put it here. Those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead. 
without facing eternal hell under the unceasing wrath of God. Considered worthy. So what does that mean? We, we've got to be good enough? If, if we'll just be good enough that we'll attain to that? Who, who is worthy to attain to that age? Well, friends, there's only been one who was worthy to attain to that age. Only one who was worthy of this resurrection from the dead. His name is Jesus. And here's the beautiful thing about what he did. We are not worthy. We can never be worthy. We will never be worthy in and of ourselves. And so what Jesus did is he went to this cross, taking your sin upon himself, and died in your place. The worthy one for the unworthy one. And he said, I will give myself in order that you might be saved and have life eternal. And so the worthy one says, I will grant to you to live in my worth if you will trust in me. When we trust in his work on our behalf, we share in his worth because of his grace. And we're given the promise of eternity. And so there will be a resurrection that comes. We will enter into immortality because of the one who has conquered death. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 53, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This is the resurrection. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable puts on the imperishable, when this mortal puts on immortality, then is going to come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he ends with this. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul takes this doctrine of the resurrection and he says as a result of this doctrine of the resurrection, you be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Jesus comes along and he says, what you believe has direct impact on how you behave. And so live out what you believe. The Sadducees, they could only conceive of the world to come as some sort of continuation of the world as it currently is. They, they limited the power of God to make things new, to transform, to recreate. And I wonder if somehow in our lives we've done the same thing. That, that we've allowed the doctrine of eternity to be pushed so far back because we live in the realm of now. That it's changed us, fundamentally transformed us. <clears throat> Is your life so consumed with this age that you have forgotten about the age to come? And what really matters?
I mean, let's, let's just imagine that we somehow make it to a hundred. I mean, that's cause for celebration. Maybe get your name on the national news with that. But how much is eternity compared to a hundred? We live, we do everything we can for this tiny little sliver that we think is life. But we fail to realize everything that comes. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. In other words, Paul comes along and he says this doctrine of the resurrection, if it's not true, the whole world should look at us and just go, oh, isn't that sad? But because it is true, it changes everything about us. Understand that Jesus is so emphatic about this because Jesus believes that doctrine matters. It matters whether you believe the resurrection. It matters eternally whether you believe in the resurrection. So we see the importance of doctrine to Jesus, but from where does Jesus get his doctrine? You see, not only do we see his attitude towards doctrine, but we also see his attitude towards Scripture. Look, look carrying on down into verse 35, 36, Jesus gives some examples of what it's going to be like in eternity. Uh, he says those who are considered worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, they cannot die anymore. Because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons in the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, verse 37, even Moses showed. You see, here's the thing. The Sadducees, they denied the resurrection because they said it wasn't taught in the Torah. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus basically comes along and he says, Uh-huh, you've not been reading your Bible. Let me take you back to Moses and I'll show you. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. Moses stands before the burning bush. This is where God calls him uh, to go and lead his people out of slavery and bondage. Where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Then Jesus says, now he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. So Jesus comes along and he says, showing us his attitude toward scripture. He says, the reason that I believe this is because of what is taught in the word of God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God revealed himself to Moses there at the burning bush. And we read there, now he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. But what's interesting is, all three of these people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three of them had died long before Moses ever came along. Now think about this. God gave the promise to Abraham. Abram, as he was called when the promise first came. He says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land that shall be for you and your generations to follow. This is the promise that I'm making to you. Now imagine if, if the promise of God to save his people was not going to be of any significance after that person died, then what possible use was the promise? 
What's the big deal about it? Abram, the promise was given to him. But if when he dies, the promise is over, what's the use in that? So Jesus says, you don't know your Bible. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God of the dead, not the dead, but of the living. comes along and he says, I believe in the resurrection because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You know what he means by that? He simply means that every single one of us will live forever. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, physically dead by the time of Moses, but yet still living. Remember when Jesus, we looked at this back in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was in the wilderness and Satan came to tempt him. Do you remember what Jesus did every temptation that Satan brought against him? He countered back to him saying, it is written. It is written. It is written. It is written. Every time he brings him back to the word of God. Jesus Christ the Word of God living in the flesh lived his life consumed with the written Word of God given to his people. Should we not be the same? So many people will come along and say, oh, I have such admiration for the teachings of Christianity. I like the golden rule, be kind, love one another. But I just don't believe in this stuff like this resurrection. What's really important is how we live our lives now. But friends, understand how we live our life now is determined by what we believe. And what we believe must be based upon the word of God. It is why we consistently come back to you and encourage you to be a student of the word of God. To know the Word of God, to live in the Word of God, and to live out the Word of God. And so I need you to understand this morning. Jesus deals with this issue of the resurrection. He does it by letting us peek into his life and see his attitudes toward doctrinal beliefs and his attitude toward scriptural teachings. But let's not miss the point of everything this talks about when Jesus talks about resurrection. Because resurrection is awaiting each one of us. It either will be a resurrection from the dead or it will be a resurrection of the dead. And so there must be careful planning in preparation for that resurrection. Theologian Charles Hodge once said, it is important that when we come to die, we have nothing to do but die. Man, that's a powerful statement. It's important that when we come to die, we have nothing to do but die. Why do we do that? Well, we do that by preparing for that day to come, preparing for that eventual resurrection. See, here's what happens. In order to prepare us for heaven, God allows us to experience things in our lives. Suffering, sorrow, disappointment, 
so that what happens in our lives, we have a healthy discontentment with this edge that creates within us a longing for that edge. You know there's more. You know it. I know you know it. Because God says in Ecclesiastes, he's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. You know it. You know there's more than this life. I don't have to convince you of that. You can seek to deny it if you want to. But you know it's true. It's why, it's why people come up with all sorts of fanciful things for what happens after death. But what's happened is God has put eternity into our hearts. And he has given you this, this slice of time right here to be prepared for that. And so as we look to the resurrection that is to come, the question obviously becomes, are you prepared for that? Are you ready for that? It's coming. Jesus makes it abundantly clear in his teaching before us, and Paul makes it clear. The Word of God in totality makes it clear. There is a resurrection coming for all of us. So the question is, are you prepared for that? And prepared, by prepared, I mean spiritually. I don't care about your 401k. I don't care about your life insurance policies. I'm not talking about any of that as, as good a place as they may have in our lives in this age. I'm talking about preparing you for that which is a lot longer. Have you confessed faith in Christ? Have you trusted in Him for salvation? Have you come to the point of saying, Jesus, I realize I am a sinner. And my only hope in this life or the life to come is your work. Are you prepared for that? Are you helping others be prepared for that? Are you living for this age or for that age? Father, this morning, thank you. Your word is perfect. It is true. And it is immensely relevant and practical. And so, Father, I would ask now, please, would you speak to our hearts and our lives? Some today lost apart from Christ that need to come to Him. I pray, please, would you bring them to that moment of absolute surrender and trust. Convict our hearts, Father, in those areas where we spend so much energy living for this age in exclusion to that age that our minds might be shifted entirely for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand this morning.